at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5, the first 11 verses. Let's hear now the Word of God, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. But if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us this morning. Amen. Well, seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's return back to the passage we read from Romans chapter 5. We'll be focusing our attention upon the end of verse 2. Let's refresh our memories here with verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And again, with God's help this morning, we'll be focusing upon what Paul mentions there at the end of verse 2, hope. There's so much included in, in this notion of hope as Paul lays it out here and really commences a discussion of it in these verses and beyond that our plan is this morning to simply focus on hope in more general terms as it pervades the epistle to the Romans and as it has a, a great significance for the Christian life and for our understanding of Christian doctrine. And then, God willing, next Lord's Day, we'll think specifically of rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. It's not difficult to see what Paul is actually saying here in broad strokes. He's saying we've been justified by faith in Christ. We have these benefits now as believers. We have peace with God. We've been reconciled to God through the perfect obedience and sacrifice of Christ. He's been raised up for our justification. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit has united us to Christ. His righteousness is now our righteousness by imputation. It's accounted and accredited unto us. And we're right with God. We have peace with God. We're friends of God like our father Abraham. We have these things through Christ. And through Christ also, verse 2, we have access. We have obtained access. Remember, that's in the perfect tense. It's a past action with ongoing results. We have obtained access by faith into this grace, into this undeserved favor from God, this favorable disposition, this acceptance and love and 
gracious disposition of God towards us in which and by which we stand. We, we have access into the throne room of grace through Christ. We come by faith believing that God loves us and accepts us. And through this interaction and communion with God, we're strengthened. We stand in the presence of God. And therefore, we stand in the evil day and are strengthened to be faithful in a wicked and fallen world. We're told in addition to these benefits of peace with God and access into this grace, we also have hope. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Clearly a reference to heaven. The believer not only has these present blessings, but the believer is anticipating the glory to come, the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God willing, next time we'll spend more time on that, on the, the glory that awaits the justified believer. Romans 8 tells us that everyone whom God has justified, He will also glorify. In fact, it says that those who have been justified have been glorified. It's almost so certain. It is so certain that it's spoken of in the past tense. And so we rejoice in that hope that we're told will not disappoint us. Verse 5. This is a hope that not only looks to heaven, but is maintained on earth in earthly circumstances. It's not an airy-fairy sort of thing. It's something that is real and firm and steadfast in our hearts and therefore we're able to glory or boast I think would be a better translation there boast in tribulations so as we're anticipating the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory we recognize that our momentary light afflictions in this world are paving the way and working for us the glory that is to come. And therefore, we're able to even boast in the midst of even the most difficult circumstances which you can see in the life of the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament. And so it enables us to, to persevere and to be conformed to Christ in our character and therefore all the more to be growing in our hope, in our confident, eager expectation of all that God has promised to do. And of course, it's all by the Holy Spirit whom God has shed abroad in our hearts to fill us with His love. So that's the basic picture. But it's important for us to recognize the significance of hope in itself before we get to some of the particulars. Hope, we might define just in a very simple way, perhaps inadequate for certain purposes, but for ours this morning, I think adequate. We can define it as confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. Confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. Hope. Hope is in some sense faith and love applied into the future. Faith and love exercised or applied towards the future. The confidence that we have about what God has promised to do, that it's actually going to come to pass, would be the manifestation of faith. We're believing God's promise and therefore we're confident by way of hope, we're confident that it's going to come to pass. The hope that the Bible describes is not, in terms of the hope of the believer, is not the hope of the hypocrite, which perishes, the uncertain hope of those who are not rooted and grounded in Christ. The way we use the word hope sometimes in this world, well, uh, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow or something like that. Not saying it's wrong to use the word that way, but in some sense it really can confuse us when we come to the Bible because... The word hope in the context of salvation is a sure and certain hope that you can sink your teeth into, that you can grab hold of, that, that is a result of faith applied to the future. Confidence, certainty of what God has promised to do. That's why in Hebrews 11 verse 1, we think the apostle is writing here, the apostle Paul himself, 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith and hope are very tightly wound together. And hope is just faith applied to the future. There's also an element of love. Again, we're keeping in the back of our minds here Paul's triad of Christian virtue, faith, hope, and love. Love is also involved in hope because hope is the opposite of fear or dread. If there's something that you're certain is going to happen in the future that you're not looking forward to, we wouldn't call that hope, would we? We'd call it fear. We'd call it dread. But when we speak of hope, when we speak of faith as the substance of things that we're hoping for, it involves desire on our part, a longing on our part. It means that we actually have a favorable, positive outlook on what God has promised to do. We're eagerly expecting it. We're longing for it. And so it's a reflection of our love for God and our love for what God has promised to do. So there's something of the will involved, not just uh, the certainty of faith, but there's an eagerness, a love that is involved in hope. So it's faith and love applied to the future. And faith, hope, and love are so integrally related. Uh, You look at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7, love believes all things, love hopes all things. So you can see how these things are all so closely bound together. But hope is faith and love applied to the future, a confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. There is a belief and there is a longing. And when we speak of hope, we're now entering the realm of that which is frequently in in Christian theology spoken of as eschatology. Now, I don't delight in using a big word like that. Many of us may be familiar with the word. It's not intimidating. Some of us may find it intimidating because for whatever reason. Um, But it is an important word to know, eschatology. The first part of that word, eschatos or eschaton, refers to that which is last, that which comes last, the, the final ultimate end. And so, obviously, ology refers to the doctrine or study of something, and so eschatology refers to the biblical doctrine of the last things, of, we could say, the end times, although I don't think that fully captures it, but it's the doctrine of what God has yet promised to do. The last things, or the things that are leading to and then including the very end. And so for the Old Testament saints, their Old Testament eschatology would include the first coming of Christ to usher in these last days, Hebrews 1. And then everything, even now in the New Testament, as we look ahead, we look ahead to what God has promised to do. Those things that, for which we have a confident, eager expectation based on the Word of God. Eschatology. So when we think of hope, we're thinking of things that are eschatological things that are leading to and then eventually including the end of the world, the return of Christ, the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead, the eternal state, heaven and hell. All of these things are considered to be eschatology. But we have a personal eschatology. Your death is part of personal eschatology. What happens at your death? If you're a believer, okay, your soul and body at death still remain united to Christ. Your your body's buried in the ground. Your soul is perfected in holiness and enters into the presence of Christ, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's your personal eschatology. And then you'll be with the saints in glory, the spirits of just men made perfect around the throne with whom we have uh, a fellowship as we gather here, Hebrews 12, the, the angels and saints in glory, God the judge of all the earth, Christ the mediator, that there's a unity we have with with the church, uh, the whole family in heaven and earth. But that won't go, go on forever. You won't be eternally separate from your body, but at the last day, Christ will raise it from the dead. Again, you can think of your personal eschatology. It's very important because your personal eschatology is everything. I mean, where are you gonna be for all eternity? 
Are you going to be at the last day? Are you going to be with the sheep or with the goats? So eschatology is far more important than many people take it to be. And it's grounded in certain doctrines that are far more fundamental than the sorts of things we often think about when we think of eschatology and, and we're thinking of the, the, the rapture and the seven years of tribulation in some Christian circles and so on and so forth. But eschatology is very important because it, it involves hope. It involves the confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. And Paul applies this hope in Romans 5 in two ways. He applies it to our hope of heaven, as I mentioned, the hope of glory, the hope of the glory of God. Of course, we could try to take that in many ways, but it's clear. We'll see next time. It's clear uh, that this is a reference to the hope of heaven. And then verses 9 and 10, he says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved. So you're thinking of hope, you're thinking of eschatology, and you're reading Paul's epistles, look for the future tense when he says what will happen and what shall happen. This is when we begin to think about eschatology. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. So there's a future aspect to salvation, not a future aspect to justification. That's already happened. We've been justified by his blood, but there's still a final judgment to come, and our justification stands. We don't have a second justification or a final justification, but there will be wrath at the last day, and we'll be delivered from it precisely because our justification has been set in stone. So, yet there is this expectation. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. In other words, He's going to be our advocate at the last day when, when judgment is meted out and people are sent into the lake of fire. Jesus will be there as our advocate to protect us and to make sure that we don't get sent into the lake of fire. Not that God would make that mistake, but you see there's something comforting here that He will save us. He shall save us from wrath. For when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So if you thought Jesus' death saved you to the uttermost, and certainly it did, how much more will the resurrected Christ as your advocate, as your ascended, sovereign, prophet, priest, and king, standing there by your side, how much more assurance of your salvation should you have? You see... There's this future aspect as we look into the future. And the reality is even the most steadfast believer, when that person wrestles with the reality of death and is perhaps anticipating death as, as a very imminent occurrence in their life, even the most steadfast, assured believer has to wrestle with this, that there are future uh, if you could say threats, future things that might cause doubt. Well, I, I'm going to die. What's going to happen? I know what's going to happen, but I've never experienced this before. And there are these future things that are going to happen. And then there's a future judgment to come. Yes, I know what's going to happen, but the doubts come in. And this is where Paul points us to eschatology, a hope that allows our faith to be applied forth into these future events and to maintain not only confident expectation of what God has promised to do, but even an eagerness where we're looking forward to these things in some sense. And we have this hope of heaven. Also, he applies this to hope for history. Hope in our daily lives. Hope in our circumstances here on the earth. Hope in human history. Verses 3-5. through five. Not only that, he says but we also glory in tribulations, so on and so forth. So even in this life, we have hope. We have hope, not just for the last day, but for the next big tribulation that may arise in our lives. We have hope, God's going to get me through this. Jesus will stand with me and strengthen me, and I will persevere and be conformed in my character to Him. We have hope, and the more tribulations we experience, the, and we go through this cycle that he describes here that we'll look at at a future time, the more we go through that cycle, the more hope we have. And our hope ever increases throughout our lives. So hope, 
is crucial. Now, we've already talked about the major structural transition that's happening here in Romans, in this epistle, beginning in verse 5, where he's discussed the need for justification by faith alone. He's discussed that in the opening chapters of the book, up through the middle of chapter 3, how human unrighteousness demands that we be justified by the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And then midway through chapter 3, we've seen that he points us to the object of our saving, justifying faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, our redemption, our propitiation. He died for our sins. And on through to chapter 4, where we see the necessity of justification by faith alone shown from the Scriptures and the life of Abraham and the experience of David and all of these things he proves from the Scriptures that we need to be justified through faith alone in Christ alone and in His righteousness alone, the righteousness of God through faith in Him, uh, Him who was raised up for our justification. And then we come to chapter 5, and we said that he's now laying down this statement, therefore having received all of that, having received justification by faith in Christ, here's what we now have. And he begins to speak to, to his audience as we, as fellow believers, as those who have been justified and now have these benefits. And we looked at peace with God. We looked at access to his grace. We're looking at hope of the glory of God. So there is this transition, but I, I want to point to another transition that I think is very crucial for us, perhaps even more crucial, in understanding Paul's epistle to the Romans. You can see in your bulletin insert, I've given you an outline of Paul's epistle to the Romans, structuring it according to this threefold theme of faith, hope, and love. Now, I think in previous references that I've made to the structure of the book, I've taken the more conventional approach, which says sin, salvation, service, or guilt, grace, gratitude. And there's something to be said for that. But I think if we really look at this epistle, we can see that the structure actually seems more so to be ordered around faith, hope, and love. In other words, you have... Uh, I have five points there as a good Calvinist, uh, five points. But the first and the last one are merely the introduction and the doxology. So if we remove those, uh, we've got three main points in this epistle of the Romans. First, Christian faith, trusting in what God has done. And so you can see, as I already mentioned, there's this assertion of justification by faith alone in chapter 1, followed by the need for it based on human sin, he confronts the Jews, he confronts the Gentiles, we're all sinners, we all need justification by faith alone in Christ alone. He establishes what Christ has done in chapter 3 at the end there, and then he demonstrates it from Scripture in chapter 4. So it's focusing us on Christian faith or the Christian gospel, justification by faith, however you want to look at it, the emphasis is on faith. But then he moves in chapter 5 up through the end of chapter 11 to consider hope, anticipating what God will do. And you can see in the passage we read from chapter 5 that there is this emphasis upon the transition from faith in what God has already done to this believing hope in what God will do. A number of the passages I've already read from our scripture reading here, which speak of the Lord dying for us when we were sinners and enemies, and we believe that. Our faith is exercised in what he's done in the past, but therefore now we have this confident believing hope that we shall be saved from wrath, and we shall be saved by his life, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, not just the glory of God manifested in the past, not just the finished work of Christ, but in the future aspect, not just, as we say, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, but eschatology, looking forward to what God has promised to do in history, throughout our lives, and ultimately at the last day. Paul's emphasis throughout chapter 5 on through chapter 11 is on hope, the transition from faith to hope, chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, 
Then, in the remainder of chapter 5, you see the background of hope. Hope is inherently historical. Okay? Hope is looking to what God has promised in the future, but the context of hope is therefore the timeline of God's plan. So when we hope, we're assuming there's a present and there's a future which presupposes that there's a past. And so in order for us to understand the present and the future by way of hope and eschatology, Paul gives us the background in the latter portion of chapter 5, the background of this timeline in broader strokes. That is, from Adam, who was a type of Christ, Adam sinned and, and brought misery and death and evil into the world. Christ obeyed and brought righteousness unto eternal life into the world. Adam and Christ. This is the broader landscape, the broader timeline of redemptive history that's necessary. It's the background of our hope, necessary for us to understand how the present and future fit into the overall picture of redemptive history. Then in chapter 6 through 11, he looks at various types of hope, various things that God has promised to do, either in history or in heaven, various things God has promised to do that we need to cling to and be certain of and even eagerly anticipate. So you have, first of all, the believer's sanctification unto glorification. Chapter 6, verse 1 through the end of chapter 8. The believer's sanctification unto glorification. And I'm, I'm kind of using our bulletin insert here if you haven't noticed that. So we're in section 3 of that outline. But subpoint 1 of subpoint 3. A lot of points in there. But the believer's sanctification is an aspect of hope and of eschatology. We don't often think of it that way, but that's how Paul thinks of it. And when he speaks of God promising to renew our minds and make us like Christ and liberate us from the dominion and power of sin and make us servants of righteousness and enable us to be free from the power of sin and death and free, liberated by Christ to walk in new obedience, as he speaks of that, he uses the future tense in some of the most key portions of that passage. He says that um, sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. That's future. You need to understand, dear believer, that your sanctification is guaranteed no less than the resurrection day that's coming. No less than the second coming of Christ, the final judgment, the eternal state of heaven and hell. It is an aspect of the personal eschatology of every believer. Your sanctification unto glorification. The believer's sanctification is eschatological. It is something the believer ought to be confidently and eagerly expecting as something that God has promised to do. It's not merely an aspect of soteriology or salvation. It's not merely an aspect of ethics, what you ought to be, what you ought to do, but it's an aspect of eschatology. It's what you shall do. You could even read the Ten Commandments, sort of out of context, a little Spurgeonutics, but you could say, um, thou shalt not do this. And Thou shalt do that. It's actually, in the context, it's a command, but that word shall or shalt, you could read it as a promise because for every believer, that's what we shall be. Those are the things we shall abstain from and the things that we shall obey gradually in this life and then perfected at the last day. And it's interesting that Paul really points this out in a powerful way at the end of Romans chapter 8. Of course, we're familiar with chapter 6 where he, he lays out the basis of sanctification unto glorification. He lays out the basis in Christ's death and resurrection so that we die to sin and are alive to righteousness. He lays out the extent of sanctification that we're no longer slaves to sin toward the end of chapter 6 up through the beginning of chapter 7. He talks about the conflict and imperfection of sanctification in this life. Chapter 7, I, I want to do the right thing, but I keep falling into sin. 
our, our sanctification is, has not reached glorification. It's imperfect. We fail. We falter. We must repent and receive forgiveness on a daily basis. The conflict, the imperfection. Uh, who will deliver me from this body of death, Paul says. But then chapter 8, the substantial victory in this life. The believer by the power of the Holy Spirit kills sin and has substantial victory over the sins that are described in chapter 7. And those conflicts lead to gradual, ever-increasing victory. I say ever-increasing in the big picture. Not to say there aren't you know, one step forward, two steps back, ups and downs. But, but sanctification is a real thing, and it does bring progress throughout the Christian life. Progress and victory. Then at the end of chapter 8, uh, he speaks of the way in which sanctification is really just the gradual beginnings of glorification and, and the glory that is yet to come as, as the world is remade and refashioned. You see that in chapter 8 in the life to come. And it's, it's liberated from the curse and from misery and you can see the, the revelation of the glorious liberty of the sons of God that's coming at the second coming of Christ to the earth. You see the patient endurance that the believer experiences by the Holy Spirit's power, chapter 8, verse 24 through 27. But what I want to focus on here, as I said, is at the end of chapter 8, Paul asserts the absolute certainty of the believer's sanctification unto glorification. And so you look at verse 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. He goes on, for whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's eschatology. That's every believer whom God has chosen and loved before the foundation of the world. He has placed that believer in Christ at their conversion, put the Holy Spirit within them, Christ in them, the hope of glory, and he has predestined them to be conformed to the image of Christ. Gradually in this life, but finally and perfectly in the life to come. That is eschatology. Both the gradual process and the perfection at the last day are part of things that are absolutely certain and guaranteed for every believer. He goes on, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. So you've got predestination in eternity past. You've got the effectual calling of the gospel by the Spirit's power at our conversion. We've been called. We've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Christ through faith. We've been saved. Whom he called, these he also justified. So at our conversion, we're also made right with God. And whom he justified, you're expecting him to say, he also sanctified or will sanctify. And then he'll glorify them. But he doesn't say that. He says, whom he justified, these he also glorified. So there are two things there that are very encouraging. Number one, as I already mentioned, it's in the past tense, which means it's a done deal. It's absolutely guaranteed for every believer. You don't have to read the Lamb's Book of Life or Predestination to know that this applies to you. If you've been called and you believed and you've been justified, then your future glorification, that deal has been sealed from all eternity, almost to the point where you have been glorified, if you could even take it with that level of certainty. That's the tense here. But also, notice he goes right from justification to glorification. Now, where do we find sanctification in this order of saving benefits? Well, we find it in the fact that sanctification is just the gradual beginnings, as I said, of glorification. Both involve our conformity to Christ. Both involve the transformation of our nature, renewing the image of God within us. One is gradual and imperfect in this life. The other is perfect in the life to come. But these two things are linked inseparably. And so he can speak of both simply by referring to the perfection 
of that process, namely glorification. And if there's any doubt that this is the, the proper way to interpret it, you can look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where he says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So here, believers looking into a mirror and seeing the glory of the Lord. In other words, the, the glory of Christ by way of Christ's work in his soul, conforming the believer to Christ and sanctifying him. And he sees, as he looks at himself in the mirror, he sees the glorious work of the Holy Spirit within him. We, as in a mirror, behold the glory of the Lord. We're being, he says, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, glorification is a one-time, final, definitive act at the, end, uh, at the end of our lives in terms of our soul going to heaven and then at the resurrection, body and soul. That glorification is not a process. But here, he speaks of our transformation in holiness or sanctification as a transformation from glory to glory. In other words, your holiness is glorious. Your, when you're sanctified, it's your progressive glorification leading to your final glorification. And uh, that's, I think, evidence that, that this is exactly what Paul is saying here. That he's saying that your sanctification is part of that sure, guaranteed outcome of glorification in heaven. It has, we might say, an eschatological certainty. And this is what he says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. A familiar passage, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You've been chosen for heavenly glory. And you see, the way Paul describes it is, you've been chosen and predestined to be holy and blameless before Him in love, gradually in this life and finally in the world to come. So there's an eschatological certainty he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it even to the day of Jesus Christ. There's an eschatological process as well from glory to glory. And that process is described in Romans 6 through 8, but it's a process that while it acknowledges the difficulties in the process, that this is not an easy journey, that it, it's, it involves a veil of tears, the valley of Baca, Okay, but those tears are a spring of water and refreshment, and we advance from strength to strength on our advance to Mount Zion. It's an eschatological process. Right now, every believer is a new creation. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Behold, if any man is in Christ, he says, new creation. In other words, not just as an individual, but we are the first fruits of the new creation, the new heaven, the new earth. We are the first fruits of the world to come. We are part of the new creation. We are new creation, not just new creatures, but there's this cosmic element alongside the personal. New creation. This, this sanctification process is eschatological, and there's an eschatological motivation as well. Listen to Colossians 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says this, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, see there's faith, there's love, what can we expect in the next verse? Verse 5, Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So when Paul preached the gospel, it wasn't just faith and then faith working by love, but right there in the center, the glue between faith and love, the neglected middle child in our day, but the integral cornerstone 
of Paul's presentation of the word of the truth of the gospel is hope. Yes, they believed, and yes, their faith worked itself out in love for all the saints. Galatians 5, 5, and 6, faith works by love, but it's because of the hope laid up for them in heaven that they heard about. So their faith in what Christ had done for them and their faith looking ahead to what God had promised to do in them produced love. Faith works by love, not in an unmediated way, but faith works by love because of hope, according to Colossians 1.5. And if we don't have hope, we're hopeless. We're in trouble, uh, as I'm going to mention in just a moment. Uh, but there's an eschatological motivation. Paul inserts this hope into every aspect of his gospel. You look at Philippians 3, he says he counts everything as loss and rubbish and dung compared to the excellency of knowing Christ, being found in him, having a righteousness through faith in Christ and not of his own. And then immediately he pivots to pressing on toward the goal, attaining unto the resurrection. And everything is about uh, uh, the future, hope, progress, determination in seeking that ultimate end. There's an eschatological motivation for Christian duty. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, we spent a year considering that chapter, and yet remember how it ended. The thing that Paul uses to bring it all together at the end is we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, love endures forever. There's this heavenly eschatological motivation. You see it in, in the, the latter portion of Romans. So we have a, an evening sermon series. We'll be dealing with what Paul says in chapters 9 through 11 in the epistle of the Romans. There he has a hope for the ingathering of all nations. But if we skip to the, the third major section of Romans, Christian love, obeying what God has commanded, you see that in chapters 12 through 16, Paul deals with our duties of Christian love. And certainly at the beginning, he says that we're motivated by the mercies of God. But listen to chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. So he goes into all these aspects of Christian duty, loving our neighbor, keeping the commandments, Love, love, love. Everything's about love in these verses. Notice the motivation, verse 11, for our love. And do this knowing the time. Not just knowing what God's done for you. Yeah, but also knowing what He's promised to do. Knowing the time. That now is high time to wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. On and on He goes. The motivation for putting on the Lord Jesus Christ and making no provision for the flesh is eschatology, hope, what God will do. Now, the church today, in many respects, has ignored this emphasis on hope. There's a lot of emphasis on faith and on Christian doctrine and on justification and on the gospel, even on holiness to some extent, at least conceptions of what it ought to be. There's a lot of ought, but there's not enough shall. Uh, we have a sense of what we ought to do in terms of love. We have a sense of what's true and false in terms of faith. But th there is this neglected middle child, the glue, the bridge between faith and love, between doctrine and practice, uh, between heaven and history, between glory and godliness has been neglected. And we have something of a Christianity that in lacking this hope has become a hopeless Christianity. We've ceased to view sanctification and at another time we'll consider the Great Commission as well. We've ceased to view both of these things as eschatological. We've turned them into oughts. We've turned them into things we should do. Wouldn't it be great if I was sanctified? Wouldn't it be great if... All nations were grafted in and gathered into the church. There's an if, there's a maybe, there's a, you know, a hope in the worldly sense of hope of, well, it might happen, wouldn't it be great? 
Certainly we'd want it to happen, but we've de-eschatologized sanctification and the Great Commission. And for that reason, we've become hopelessly disconnected in terms of our is, what's true, and our ought, the loving duties we know we should be following, and the shall of God's promise. We're hopelessly disconnected between these things that I've mentioned, doctrine and practice, heaven and history, glory and godliness. And we're hopelessly abstract because you see it's hope that connects us with history, reality. It it connects us with everyday life, the providence of God. It reminds us that redemptive history is not on pause. So this is a huge problem in the church today, and we could get into why this is the case. Um, I have it in my notes, but we just don't have time for that. But many Christians view redemptive history as, well, there was Bible times in the past, and then Jesus rose again, and He's coming back, and in between, this is just this... this, um, Period in between, in between Bible times, in between redemptive historical events. But you see, redemptive history is not on pause. It's happening right now. We live in Bible times. The Bible speaks about our times. Uh, Where there's no vision, the people perish. My friends, we have a vision. Again, we could get into more of that in the book of Revelation. But, But redemptive history is happening right now. And we become practical deists when we forget about what God has promised to do even in our own lives and in our own day. Your battle with sin is a matter of God's redemptive historical plan. There's an individual aspect in your battle with sin. You're part of God's redemptive historical plan and you need to start applying the shall. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Not just ought, but shall. We become hopelessly negative. We're filled with fear and anxiety, pessimism, cynicism. With respect, and I'll I'll just focus, based on what I preached this morning, I'll focus on sanctification. We become negative. We're down. We're discouraged. We're hopeless. In your battle against sin, in your labor to implement biblical priorities and seeking first the kingdom in personal family worship, okay, are you just throwing up your hands, shrugging your shoulders. We've been, we've been filled with this ought without the shall, and it's left us weak, hopelessly weak. Paul says we rejoice in hope, and friends, that rejoicing, that joy of the Lord is our strength. And so without this hopeful confidence, without this eager expectation, without the shall, we become weak and the devil eats our lunch. You know, the the devil mops the floor with us. We get shellacked in the battle against sin. We're hopelessly weak, hopelessly self-reliant, because if we're not trusting in what God has promised to do to give us victory in our Christian life, then we're going to be having confidence in something else. We're going to be trusting in something else. Ultimately, we're going to bear the burden of the ought rather than finding the peace and rest and strength of the shall. We become hopelessly distracted. See, if we don't have in our minds what God has promised to do in our lives, in the world, in all these aspects of life between now and the second coming, if we're not viewing it as redemptive history, as God's plan, and expecting and eagerly awaiting what He's going to do based on the principles of His Word, we're going to fill the vacuum that we've created with alternatives, alternative pleasures and interests and things that we obsess over, alternative confidence, political parties, elections. Oh, this is the greatest election. And no, the greatest election happened in eternity past. And you need to think about what God is doing and what God is promising to do. Uh, We become hopelessly short-sighted. We become a desperate and compromising people that will flock to whatever politician or organization or movement that catches our eye, like the raccoon sees the shiny tinfoil and there he goes, we're short-sighted. We're not thinking about our long-term victory. How did our country get in the place that it is? How did your life, if it's in shambles, get to where it is? Okay, It was a series of decisions and choices. Satan has a long-term game plan for unraveling you and defeating the church. We need to think long-term. We need to think about 
the, the, the basics, establishing ourselves in God's word, establishing our families in God's word, uh, not just running after the, the shiny movements and compromising in desperation with wicked politicians. Uh, we become hopelessly prayerless. Why? Because certainty breeds prayer. The more certain you are of victory, the more you're going to be drawn to pray because it's going to uplift you. To dwell in the presence of the God who's promised to give you victory, to use prayer as a way of receiving strength. B.B. Warfield defined prayer as the preparation of the heart to receive grace. If you know the grace is there, and you know that grace is almighty and will equip you and will give you all that you need for life and godliness, then you're going to be on your knees. Elijah was told to pray for rain. He knew it was coming, and he prayed for it. In Ezekiel, God promises to revive his people, and then he says, I'll be, I'll be inquired of for this. I want you to pray for this. Daniel chapter 9, he reads the prophecy of Jeremiah and discerns now's the time for the return from exile, and he immediately prays because of the certainty. Christ himself, as God, knew everything that was going to happen to him, and it drew him to pray more so than anyone else who ever walked the face of the earth. Paul was confident that all Israel would be saved, but you see in chapter 10, verse 1, his prayer to God is that they would be saved. You need to think of the shall. It's not an if, it's not a maybe, it's not a might, it's not a should, it's a shall. That is the hope, that is the confident, eager expectation of what God has promised to do. And this morning we've applied it to the believer's sanctification. Have you applied it to your sanctification? Is faith in God's promise to sanctify you, in other words, hopeful expectation of that, is that first and foremost in your strategy against sin? It has to be. The only way that Paul's going to get us into chapter 6, 7, and 8 is by establishing right here, right now in chapter 5 that this is guaranteed, this is a hope, this is a sure thing, this is our personal eschatology, and a believer will, will no sooner lack sanctification and glorification than Christ will refuse to return at the last day. Let's pray. Lord God, we give thanks to you for your many precious promises that are in Christ Jesus, who is the faithful witness, the, the yea and the amen. We know that it's all in him, every spiritual blessing laid up for us in heavenly places. We pray that you would bring these blessings to our mind, not merely intellectually, not merely thinking of what we ought to do, and how our faith ought to work through love, but we pray that you would enable our minds and our hearts to take hold of the promise that you will sanctify us, that you are Jehovah who sanctifies us, that sin shall not have dominion over us, for we are not under law, but we are under grace, the grace of the Holy Spirit who applies to us the finished work of Christ, Enable us to view our entire lives as redemptive history, to view the world around us as governed by a personal, sovereign God of redemption who is bringing about His all-glorious purposes in Christ Jesus and who works all things together for the good of those who love Him and who are the called according to His purpose. We pray in His name. Amen.